1: Well, as New York City continues to reopen, one of the key issues is how do we ensure that it reopens and evolves in an equitable way? And our next guest probably has some thoughts on that. Brad Lander, New York City Comptroller candidate. He's also a veteran New York City council member from Brooklyn. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time here. Um, again, as New York City continues its reopening there are definitely some concerns here that some of the funds that have been allocated for that reopening that they be allocated in an equitable way give us your thoughts on how that may develop
3: thank you paul and matt it's great to be with you and i think your point is a good one we're getting this one-time federal funding we've got about 14 billion dollars coming in from american rescue plan and CARES funding um And there's a lot of questions about it. You know, is it being distributed equitably? Are we making sure that every neighborhood, especially those hit hardest by COVID that had those lines outside the the hospitals and food banks, um, that we're investing in small business reopening? Um, There's a lot of other questions as well. We want to make sure we're investing that money in things that uh, will help prime the economy that are one-time investments and don't create recurring obligations that hit our city budget in future years after the federal money dries up.
2: Yeah, I just... You know, the question about how you track the funds and what, what you do if they're not spent wisely, it just seems to me in general, and this isn't specific to Brooklyn or New York, um, we pay far, much, far too much in taxes for what we actually get. The government spends a lot more on stuff than I would if I were buying that stuff. How do you deal with that kind of spending run amok?
3: Well, look. What we need New York City to be is a place that people want to keep coming and creating and innovating and doing business, where cultures are thriving, where businesses are thriving. Like that's what makes New York City space, you know, special. And I will say, you know, Mike Bloomberg made clear when he was mayor, like we're not going to be able to like charge you the least in taxes to make New York City what it needs to be to have the technology and the education and the public safety um, and the thriving neighborhoods. So to me, it's less, you know, can we. Can we tax people less and more? Can we deliver a city that's thriving and that spreads those benefits around more equally?
2: No, completely, we really completely agree. Enough- it's not about – I completely agree with you. It's not about taxing people less. I'm willing to pay what I pay even a little more. It's about getting value for that money, spending it in Agreed. the right way. Agreed.
3: And look, I think in economic development, we have some compelling models the Brooklyn Navy Yard, you know, publicly owned, city-owned land, working with the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation, creating a platform for technology and clean energy companies, uh, creating good jobs. You know, I like the model of the new Cornell Tech campus on Roosevelt Island. Um, So, yes, I think when we have this one-time money that's a lot of it is for economic reopening, there is an opportunity to, to track it and to make sure it's going into the kinds of investments um, that do that. But right now, we're really not doing that at all. You, you, it's almost impossible to tell where the money's going, how much is just for basic public health services, how much is to help our kids come back and recover socially, emotionally, academically, and how much is going into economic recovery. Um, so that's step one as controller, what I want to do day, you know, in the first 100 days is put that tracking system up the state controllers actually put something like this up and then yeah like you use it to show where we are and aren't tracking outcomes um, and then be able to show folks like you um, this money is being spent in ways that will deliver a thriving economy and a more equal one today i can't do that so i'm not going to argue with you today today that money is being spent fairly willy-nilly without a lot of strategy or a lot of good tracking um, it's going to be on the next mayor to put a budget out that really does a more strategic job. As controller, what I'm going to do is shine a spotlight on it, provide the data, you know, enable people to look and see, is this going in the ways that we want it to?
1: Hey, Brad, a recent Bloomberg CityLab analysis found that New York City has spent the most on overtime pay uh, than the five biggest cities. It also found that the excessive overtime has led to higher pension payments because it counts all the overtime pay when calculating pensions. Uh, for the New York City Police Department. What will you do to change that?
3: Yeah. I've been a long time critic of this. That City Lab report, you know, uh, really uh, put it in, in black and white, but uh, a bunch of us have been saying this for a long time. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of overtime beyond what was budgeted. Like everyone has just treated the budget as like some numbers. It's okay if you blow through. And that's not, this kind of goes to what you were saying before. If that was getting us improved public safety, you might still ask questions about it, but at the moment it's not. We 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 spend more per capita. We have even before overtime substantially more uh, police per capita than any other big city in the United States, more than LA, more than Austin, more than Houston. Um and they don't and do very much though.
2: that. I, I gotta uh, say last
3: beyond that.
2: Yeah, I, I gotta well, say, last time I was up that, on uh, on hundred twenty fifth street, I saw a group of People ride by on clearly stolen motorcycles. I watched somebody doing a out in the open drug deal on the corner in the middle of the day, and people were shoplifting in Dwayne Reed. There were cops on each corner, and they did nothing about any of it. How does that? And then change? even beyond
3: that, as as the study showed, you know we're spending a lot on overtime, and there's some real questions about is that oriented to achieving public safety or is that oriented to boosting uh, boosting pensions. Look, I think there are some more promising ways to invest resources in keeping communities safe. I'm a big fan of these uh, violence interrupter programs, these cure violence programs uh, that are starting up in a lot of neighborhoods and the city's putting more money in. But we really do need to track what are we getting for that money. And I'd give one more example. You know, I talked to a lot of people who are saying, you know, the subways don't feel as safe to me. I'm more likely to see someone mm-hmm. who seems mentally ill, who seems like they might be homeless You know, but what's effective there is providing supportive housing and mental health treatments that help those folks uh, both be and live safely as opposed to having somebody pull them off the subways when they're going to get right back on tomorrow. So, you know, I think we can bring a lot more data to the conversation about what keeps our communities safe.
2: Do we have data? By the way, I'm in Berlin, Germany right now, and I noticed last night there's no traffic, um, or at least nothing compared to New York. Do we have data showing that? Congestion pricing can really solve this issue without being a regressive tax on commuters?
3: Yes. I mean, the short answer, you know, there is, you know, look, um, there's a balance. You're not going to both get dramatic, dramatic congestion reductions and dramatic increases in what you can invest in public transit. Like those things are going to happen in some Uh, inverse relationship to each other and but you know the examples from london are pretty good they have somewhat reduced traffic and substantially increased resources for transit investment um yeah and i mean it'll be really important that as the system gets stood up here we are watching really carefully and we're balancing between those goals and you know we want both those things we want both less traffic and more money for transit Uh, We're not going to be able to get them, you know, to get them both. And as the system gets tweaked, um, it is important that we really limit uh, exceptions or exemptions. Like we need a system that isn't like, you know, so means tested, you know, that it isn't achieving its broad traffic and transit goals. But I'm a longtime supporter, been fighting for it for a couple of decades,
2: and I'm glad it's about to happen. Brad, thank you so much. Brad Lander their comptroller candidate.
4: dot com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
4: Let's talk about what
2: really wealthy people are doing. High work net individuals in these markets. Michael Sonnenfeld joins us. He is the chairman and the founder of Tiger 21. They've got a collective $85 billion in assets under management. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. So What do wealthy investors think about the stock market right now? We're hovering near all-time record highs, and there seem to be so many headwinds that Mr. Market is just ignoring.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, our members are in a period where they're concerned about inflation, labor costs, uh, and uh, supply chain issues. But at the same time, over 11% of their assets are in startups and venture capital. That's an all-time high. And, of course, the public markets are the exit for those startups. And so there's more innovation going on. So our members are trying to counteract uh, their concerns. We only have 25% in public equity. It's our second largest allocation. Uh, But these uh, these are very interesting times, and climate and energy is first and foremost on their mind, but labor and inflation as well.
1: Michael, I know you're members of as you mentioned, entrepreneurs, all walks of the of business, of the economy. What are you hearing from them in terms of these supply chain issues that we hear about? You know seemingly here for months now, and they don't really show any signs of abating anytime soon.
5: Sure. You know there's been a debate uh, about the Fed. I'm using an example about whether inflation is transitory or now in a new trend, and it's the same issue on the supply chain is this the bullwhip effect of coming back to work from the pandemic new ways of working offices and so forth are we in a fundamental shift of supply chain of epic proportion and it's too early to tell but anybody who discounts does it at their peril one thing to note though is as the economy becomes more data driven or high-tech driven uh, the supply chain issues are in the physical world but in the internet world, in the digital world, the supply chain issues are a little less critical. And as uh, these issues are more a higher percentage of the economy, uh, that's why the stock market seems to still not be being destroyed by these supply chain issues. It's it's a wonder to our members, uh, but they're you know they're playing on a rapidly changing landscape.
2: So, what about the the labor shortage? I mean, you have. Um, you run businesses that that employ people. Your members run businesses that employ people. What are they hearing when they try and hire or or, or where else are those people What else are those people doing with their time
5: So we now have uh, we just crossed the thousand member mark we 're in five countries and over a hundred billion in assets so there 's a lot of businesses that our members uh, continue to own it 's sort of the all stars of entrepreneurs. And it's not just the labor shortage. You know, I went into our office the other day. We have 30 people. Only two are in the office. Everybody else is working from home. So in labor shortages, uh, one of the things is how do you retain key employees? How do you give them the flexibility if they now want to work from home? But I think, uh, as you've mentioned earlier on the program, this combination of supply chain issues and labor issues are creating new challenges uh, and you have to be really fleet of foot and uh, be able to respond as a small time entrepreneur that 's what a lot of our members are learning from one another how how uh, how to respond in these changing times
1: you know uh, michael prior to the pandemic uh, you know one could argue um, issue number one for most business people was climate energy usage uh, gre- you know green energy um, and maybe it 's taking a little bit of a, a, a you know, a back burner here during a pandemic, but it's going front and center now uh, in Scotland. You know, they're getting together uh, on a global basis to discuss these issues. What are your members saying about this?
5: So climate and energy are uh, growing to be one of the number one topics that are discussed at our monthly group meetings when people get together all over the world. We're organized in groups of 15 people and have about 80-some groups today uh in five countries and when they're talking about energy they're trying to it's not just the energy transition this is going to be an opportunity set if you're a commodity buyer think of all of the copper that's going to be used to rewire the world there's so much opportunity coming from the clean energy transition about there's estimates of between two and six trillion dollars a year that's going to be needed to rewire the planet to decarbonize the planet. It's probably the largest shift uh, of investment themes literally in the history of the markets. So uh, you can, you can uh, be concerned about climate, you have every reason to be, but in terms of investing in new startups that are going to decarbonize the planet, this is an opportunity set like we've never seen before.
1: Hey Michael, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We always love uh, chatting with you, getting your perspective and the perspective of your Members, Michael Seinenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21. They have about $100 billion in assets under management. And again, Tiger 21 is a peer membership organization for high net worth wealth creators and preservers, helping them to navigate the challenges and opportunities that success creates. They so always love getting uh, Michael's perspective and the perspective of, of his members as they navigate these financial markets and uh, this reopening of the pandemic economy. Well, Matt, as I take a look at the economic landscape out there, one of the big questions I have is where are all the workers? I see Help Wanted signs up everywhere. And we're now coming to understand one of the key issues in the supply chain glitches. They can't find enough truck drivers to get the stuff out of the port. So where are the workers? I think our next guest may have some thoughts on that. Lisa Shallett, Chief Investment Officer, Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. So, Lisa, give me your best guess to where the workers are.
6: Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, so thanks. Thanks for having me. I, you know, as as you may note, uh, you know, we have put out a piece on this last week uh, where, you know, we suggested that the pandemic actually uh, accelerated a bunch of structural changes that that were probably already afoot. Uh, With regard to the labor market and and our sense is that, you know, right now, a lot of folks may be underestimating, number one, uh, the portion of folks that uh, maybe uh, retired uh, and that retirement rate was accelerated around the pandemic. Our guess is as many as one point five to two million additional people dropped out, permanently dropped out uh, of the workforce um, because of the pandemic and, and they were able to do so quite frankly, because financial markets and their their, uh, retirement savings recovered uh, so quickly and and so fully. Um, A second group uh, of folks, uh, we think, relocated and really took advantage of uh, the ability for many jobs to, quote-unquote, go remote, uh, or move to a hybrid model that you know really uh created a mismatch between you know the supply of labor and and the demand the geographic demand for labor uh and it doesn't seem like some of those relocations are are unwinding uh and a third piece is is what we would call uh you know the the uh the retraining and and repositioning of of folks that you know, were in positions that were deemed, quote unquote, non-essential. And during this last 18 to 24 months of the pandemic, uh, those individuals, uh, you know, said, hey, the heck with that. I'm going to, you know, use this opportunity, uh, you know, to to train myself, to get certified, to move into a role uh, that is uh, considered more essential and more stable Um, And uh, I'm not going to go back to to some of those those service uh, jobs that that carry high stress and and, uh, high uh, public health risk.
2: I can tell you a couple of those hit home for me. My parents both had been wary of retiring, um, you know, for financial reasons, but they've just done so well recently in markets that they've decided to pull the trigger. This year. So uh, and then in terms of the retraining element, we 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 talk so much about truckers on this show, but I have been looking (laughs) seriously into what does it take to get, uh, you know, your long haul license, your CDL and get a job, um, not just like local delivery job, but a real, you know, follow that white line kind of job across the country. It's not easy. It's really difficult. It takes a lot of time. And obviously, to make the big money, you need a lot of experience. So, retraining takes a while. Uh, you know, in light of this, Lisa, why are we still at all time highs? We got this supply chain crisis, there's a labor shortage. Everyone's talking about real inflation. And yet, we're at 45.51. What's going on?
6: Yeah, look, I I think that there's two, you know, fundamental things. One, we know that this is a market uh, that continues to be awash in excess liquidity, Um, you know, while a a couple of of the measures that we use to look at financial conditions have begun to suggest a little bit of tightening, uh, you know, maybe at the ultra front end of the curve. Um, The reality is, is that there's still a ton of cash out there. You know, we Morgan Stanley has done some work in the last, you know, two weeks talking about the role of the individual investor, um, you know, who's been, you know, still has seems to have access to to ample uh, balance sheet reserves to put into the market that that is a segment that is, quote unquote, buying the dip. And, And so we're we have a lot of liquidity and, and money still very much eager and willing to participate in this market. I think the second thing is, is that despite the headlines and despite, uh you know, d- downgrades in GDP growth for Q3, despite the Delta variant, so far, you know, corporate earnings are holding up. Now, uh, you know, our me- measures that look at forward earnings revisions – Uh, say that that the breadth of those earnings revisions has begun to roll over that these topics uh, of inflation and input costs and lack of labor and 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 supply chain uh, are going to be a factor but it doesn't seem that thus far in the reports that that we're hearing they are a big enough factor to to throw water on this market
1: so real quickly lisa 30 seconds where are you telling clients to go right now
6: yeah, so look, we like uh the the cyclical story in in Q4 and and 2022. Um so we're buying financials, we're buying industrials, we're buying materials, we're buying energy. Uh we believe in in uh continued, you know, capex and investment cycle. Uh we believe in the housing uh cycle. So so those cyclical oriented issues which tend to still have a little bit better valuation support than maybe uh, you know, some of the the uh, the quote unquote work from home or or uh, evergreen stocks yeah. that have dominated the index is, is where we're focusing.
2: Lisa, thanks so much for your time. Always appreciate getting a few minutes with you. Lisa Charlotte, chief investment officer for wealth management at Morgan Stanley. This is Bloomberg.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Well, let's get back to the markets right now. We can do a car talk segment. Yeah. Uh, I'm up for that. We'll get back to it. But right now, let's get to, uh, we have a guest who has, I think, a pretty um, a, a, a pretty out of consensus mm-hmm. view. Well, maybe not. No, Jay Heffield joins us. Founder, Chief Executive Officer, and Portfolio Manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. And I've heard other people suggest that we could be going into a recession, Jay, because the consumer confidence numbers have just fallen off a cliff. And you don't typically see that kind of drop without a recession. But you think the Fed will be to blame when we finally get there. Why?
7: Well, First of all, thanks, uh, Paul and Matt, for having me on again. Well, we think that the Fed has uh, lost control of inflation. Specifically, uh, they increased the monetary base by 83% since the beginning of pandemic. <clears throat> and um, that has had uh, a huge impact on housing. They've lowered mortgage rates to an all-time low. And now housing prices are up 20%. Rents are up 10 So we see... That we think that the run rate inflation level is 10%, which sounds pretty radical, but I guess it, it seems today conservative because there was a tweet um, that um, we're in a hyperinflation, which we definitely think we're not. That hyperinflation, by the way, is uh, commonly defined as 10% per month, and we're talking 10% run rate per year. So we're an order of magnitude, and we're conservative in that. But we do think— It would think-
2: still be the highest we've seen since— you know, the early 80s, right?
7: Correct. Well, there was one important thing, and I would urge uh, all listeners to focus on the housing sector because it's been involved in 11 out of the eleven uh, last 11 recessions since World War II. But the reason, in my opinion, that the Fed got away with quantitative easing after the financial crisis is we had 4 million extra homes. So we had a huge, uh, it took five years to work this off. So they got away with uh, increasing the monetary base you know, at similar percentages. But this time, we have really the opposite, where we have kind of normal construction and no excess housing. So that's why you're seeing this accelerated inflation. And also, uh, energy has its own separate dynamics. Natural gas is trading at the equivalent, oil equivalent, of $180 a barrel. And so that's when we mark to market on a run rate basis the BLS estimates of five point four. We're getting right around ten, and it can be worse in Phoenix. Uh, they, their rents are up twenty three and a half percent, so it would be more like thirteen in Phoenix.
1: How much of these inflationary issues, Jay, do you believe are transitory as a federal reserve continues to claim, or and how much of them are, are you know, maybe a little bit longer term?
7: Well the best way to frame that debate is to recognize that most of the fed is the Keynesians or neo-Keynesians so they tend to focus on cost-push push inflation so some of these um, you know production issues monetarists like Friedman uh, you would call it uh, too many dollars chasing too few goods so that's kind of the debate that's going that's raging but we've never had 83% and also the magnitude you know, three trillion. I mean, so, yeah, three trillion dollars of, of extra money in the system. So I would argue that the recent data uh, means that the monetarists, which is right now numbers about one on the Fed, which would be Bullard, are winning the debate. Um, what
2: What do you do as an investor? You're a portfolio manager, so it's not just about these forecasts or talking about what could happen. You've got to put your money in the right place um, so that you don't so that you hopefully make more than your benchmark and uh, definitely don't want to be losing any, where do you put it?
7: Well, we um, have funds that are focused on preferred stock. So we have tilted that away from the uh, low spread preferreds and into the higher spread, which happened to be also inflation protected. So REITs and pipelines and real assets, utilities, So we think that uh, those funds should do well if we're correct about a rising inflationary environment. And then uh, we also run a pipeline ETF. So we're kind of just fortunate that energy and real assets are likely to continue to appreciate. So it's it's a little bit easier for us to do that. We don't run a multi-strategy equity fund where we have to sell tech and buy energy, what what other other rotations you'd have. I do think that next year will be adult swim for investors. And being more defensive and being in yield stocks like Reed's Utilities Preferreds is a good way to play. And even if you miss out on a few rallies or continued tech rally, you still get paid to wait. So I think next year will be better to be defensive.
1: Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate chatting with you. Some uh, I would call them, as Matt suggested, some some out-of-consensus calls here on uh, the economy. Although uh, Danny inflation. Blanchflower
2: was saying the same thing to is us he? a couple of weeks ago. Okay,
1: yeah. good for Danny. Uh, Jay Hatfield, founder, chief executive officer, and portfolio manager for Infrastructure Capital Advisors, joining us on the phone uh, from New York City. Uh, he believes that there is a 50% chance of a recession in 2022.